is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, July 28, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. Working from back in Connecticut, Bruce Baldwin, Sarah Abbott, Taylor Schwenk, I'm Buster Only, working from my home in Montana. Guys, got our big weekend in Baltimore this weekend. What do you think, Taylor? Huge, dude. I'm so excited for everything, for uh, for some friendship time between us and Todd Radom, for the game. We're gonna get, I'm going to be able to put feet on the field at Camden Yards. I mean, that's going to be really cool. And then doing the podcast in one of the TV booths afterwards. I mean, this is this is just going to be an awesome weekend. Yeah, Sarah, what, what do you think? Have you been to Camden Yards? I have not been to Camden Yards, but I am so excited just to like be in person and see everyone not in a Zoom box. That is going to be <laughs> wild. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun being at the ballpark, all the energy, Camden Yards. I you know, told you guys covering the Orioles teams in the 90s. That place was packed. It was energized. It's such a unique place. Uh, and this is a big series coming up this weekend against the Yankees. So it, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, a little bit more about that in a bit. But uh, on today's show, you're going to hear a fun conversation between Janet Marie Smith, who helped, carry, helped to carry out the vision that is Camden Yards, and our friend Todd Radom. I had Todd uh, do that conversation with Janet Murray because uh, you know, those two guys know each other, and that was a lot of fun. We'll be reacting to all of the trade news, and at the core of all that, the Angels' decision to keep Shohei Otani and to make a playoff push for this year. They traded for one of the best available starters, Lucas Giolito, as well as veteran reliever Reynaldo Lopez. The Angels giving up two prospects who are rated among their top five. Now, before the Angels doubleheader on Thursday, Perry Manassian, the Angels general manager, spoke with reporters about the message it gave to the team. I just, as far as messages go, I just think it's improving the roster, which I've tried to do since I've gotten here. So, um, you know, we feel like there's an opportunity to win and to play well going forward. And we're going to roll the dice and see what happens. Here's Mike Trout, the Angels outfielder, who will be back sometime in August after suffering a broken handmaid. Been saying it since the beginning of the year. You know, the front office wants to win. You see the Perry's working some magic over there. And, uh, you know, Artie's, you know, um, agreeing with it. So it's, uh, it's, it's a good message for the guys. You know, we, the message has been the same all year. We're, we're in it till you know, we're not. So it's uh, going to keep pushing forward, see how it goes. I don't think making the playoffs was the primary motivation for the Angels in these moves that they made. I'll explain that in my conversation with Carl Ravage coming up. Angels manager Phil Nevin talked about uh, hearing the news about these decisions. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, I think it's a different buzz in the room today and obviously it helps us quite a bit. I mean, two quality arms and established starter that's, you know, at the top of uh, at the top of a lot of rotations. But really the buzz in the room and, and the feeling, you know, in the front office when the ownership is, is really bought into what we've got here, believes in us, uh, believes in the players, the staff. Uh, it's a great feeling to have. Yeah, so the Angels... Uh, now they know Otani's going to stay. They faced the Tigers in the doubleheader, and Otani was brilliant. He went out for the bottom of the ninth inning. And the 3-1 pitch. And this is lifted high in the air. It's hit well into center field, but making the running catch about seven or eight feet from the rim of the track is the center fielder, Mickey Moniak. And Shohei Otani has done it today in Detroit, his first major league shutout as Otani wins his ninth game of the season. That was Terry Smith, Angels Radio AMA 30. Yeah, and you heard the effort there. 
Taylor, can you replay that clip? Because you could hear Otani screaming out as he threw his last pitch. And the 3-1 pitch. And this is... Did you hear and it? How cool is that? Very cool. Very cool. I mean, like, we're going to talk about it here, but what he's, he's a unicorn, man. He's an absolute freak, and this is just the start of it. Yeah, so complete game shutout in game one. In game two, he's in the lineup as a designated hitter, and he had himself a day. Here's the next delivery, and Shohei lifts a high fly ball. It's hit well out into left center, and that one is out of here. Boy, oh boy, this Thursday afternoon in Detroit has been showtime as Otani connects 37th home run of the season. Here's Shohei swinging and lifting another ball high and deep, and that one is in right center, and that one is gone. Otani with a two-homer game right now. He has 38 for the season. Some other deals that went down uh, over the last 48 hours. The Pirates traded Carlos Santana to the Brewers for a prospect. Santana hitting 235, 321 on base percentage. He's also known for leadership. He's played in a lot of pennant races. Uh, the Pirates will receive Johnny Severino, who signed with Milwaukee for $1.23 million last year and is currently playing the Arizona Complex League. The Dodgers acquired shortstop Ahmed Rosario, sending Noah Syndergaard to the Guardians. Uh, I think for both teams, in some ways, little addition by subtraction. Rosario has really struggled defensively at shortstop for Cleveland, and so now they they turn to alternatives. And I don't think the, the Dodgers are heartbroken about trading Syndergaard, who really struggled for them, uh, You know, both players trying to benefit uh, from a change of scenery. We had two on-field incidents in recent days. On Wednesday, the Astros and Rangers got into a stare down afterwards between Houston catcher Martin Maldonado and a a couple of the Texas uh, veterans in the midst of a Ranger blowout. And then on Thursday, this happened. The pitch, a swing and a miss. Oh, Oh. that, that one caught Wilson Contreras. Contreras is on his knees. The mask and the helmet came flying, and Adam Olson, head athletic trainer for the Cardinals, hurries out there. wonder if that was the bat or the baseball. I, I think it was the bat and the backswing that hit Contreras on the side of the head. Yeah, and he was bloodied. He had to come out of the game. Ian Happ, uh, who, of course, played with Contreras for years with the Cubs, was consoling him and uh, you know, trying to signal to him, hey, sorry about that. That was the sound from the Cardinals radio network. Well, after that, Miles Michaelis responded. The 3-1 hit him. And Hap turns, and he heads to first base. It's still interesting. Well, Hap is, uh, I think Hap is walking to first base saying, you know, I, I, I understand. And the umpires are now conferring between the mound and first base about whether or not they need to issue a warning or whether you just move on from that. And I think anything you do, would, it would escalate it. I think, honestly, I think it's done right now. I think it's absolutely done. Oh, my goodness. Miles Michaelis has been kicked out of the game. That's ridiculous. Yeah, here's what it sounded like on the Cardinals television network. They're going to talk it over. They'll issue warnings. They throw them out. Wow, they just out of the game. you got to be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. Have a little feel for baseball. Have a little feel for the game. That's awful. And I think what the announcers were reacting to in part was the fact that uh, Michaelis hit Hap in the butt. Hap jogged to first base. He didn't uh, express any uh, unhappiness with it. 
But on the other hand, Taylor, this whole thing about, you know, how feel for the game, how about having a feel for the game that he didn't do it on purpose? He didn't injure his former teammate with his backswing. And if you throw at a guy on purpose, you're going to get kicked out of the game. Yeah, yeah. I can see how he might, you know, the, the whole tone of the scenario wasn't anything that was agitated. So I agree with you. You throw at someone, you should get tossed. But I, I think maybe that's what he was sort of, you know, well, maybe and, and for, look, Miles yeah, Michael is one him. of the nice. He's at my yeah. Miles Michael is a great guy. Uh, I know he wasn't trying to hurt Hap. The fact that he threw threw at him in the butt, you understand. But how about just like saying, to, you know, just saving it for after the game later and say, hey, you know, next thing, can can you work on that backswing? Yeah. Like the idea that you have to throw at somebody, I just I, I find it be silly. It seemed very obligatory. Like he's like, okay, I got to do this. Like, and it's I don't know. That's lame. I don't like that part of the game. All right, as this game played out, the Cubs, of course, trying to decide whether they're going to be buyers or sellers before the deadline. Now, they took care of business. Talkman drives one in the air, deep right center, going back toward the track. Near the wall is Jordan Walker, and that ball is going to be gone. Home run right center, Mike Talkman. Cubs now lead 7-1. to one. Yeah, it was Hall of Famer Pat Hughes, uh, the Cubs... Went on to win that game 10-3. to The Guardians faced the White Sox. They added to their lead in the top of the seventh. Here it comes. Breaking ball. Tap back to the mound and on through. It trickles into shallow center after hitting the second base bag. Scoring is Jimenez and racing the second with a hustle double. On a dribbler back through the box is Josh Naylor. 5-3 Cleveland. That from WTAM 1100, the Guardians go on to win 6-3. The Mets uh, played on Thursday night, and, and in the midst of this game, word broke that David Robertson has been traded to the Miami Marlins for two rookie league teenagers. Uh, it was one all, bottom of the eighth inning, and this happened for the Mets. Here's the pitch. Swing and a liner in the air to right. That should get the go-ahead run home. Thomas near the line. Makes the catch. Alonzo tags. Coming to the plate. The throw to the plate. Head first slide. He scores. And the Mets take the lead. That was Howie Rose on WCBS. The Mets win the game 2-1. to one. It was Brooks Raley who got the save in this game, not David Robertson. And you know what? In the next 72 hours, you might see Raley traded as well. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, I want to promote a... Uh episode of the low post Denver Nuggets head coach Michael Malone joining Zach Lowe on the podcast uh, to talk about the Nuggets journey to the 2023 NBA title good get by Zach you can listen to that where you're listening to this podcast right now or on YouTube and really the biggest thing to mention here follow Buster on Instagram if you have not done so this is the time because we're all going to be together. Sarah and I, we're going to do, be doing bits and skits on the street before the game on Sunday. Um, you know, we'll be doing a, you know, a minor Instagram takeover, taking pictures and videos and all that. So get in on the action at Buster only on Instagram should be a lot of fun. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, 
and pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. All aboard! It's the Ravi Train with Carl Ravitch. And the Ravi Train will be in Baltimore this weekend because on Sunday Night Baseball this week, we have the uh, New York Yankees at Camden Yards facing the first-place Baltimore Orioles. Ravi, how you doing? I'm great. Looking forward to this weekend, Buster. It's been a bit since we've been in uh, Baltimore, and the Charm City is looking forward to having us, which is great. I got a radio game Saturday with Glanville, so I'll spend the weekend there. No crab cakes for me, shellfish allergy, but very much looking forward to being in Baltimore. No, that, that's going to be a ton of fun. A young team, an exciting yeah. team, and, uh, you know, it's, it's fun to, you know, highlight guys like Adley Rutschman, like Gunnar Henderson. Um, all right, so you are the first person to come on the podcast to give an opinion on the Shohei Otani decisions uh, that we saw coming from the Angels. First off, what was your reaction when you first heard it? I was a little surprised. It, it's such a difficult one. I just don't think there's a real – easy answer. I don't think there's necessarily a right answer. You have a team that's that's got a lot of talent on it that's probably played a little bit above their skis, but they've been without Mike Trout, who's, you know, the next best player in baseball. Um, hard to, to send a message to the team, the clubhouse, the fan base, like, well, we see what we've done. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity with this guy. Um, we can't trade him but maybe we should trade up. I I just don't think there's an easy right answer. Uh, But I was a little bit surprised because you look at their schedule. My gosh. I mean, they, you know, look, it it makes sense to trade and try to get better, but you know, they got Houston and San Francisco and uh, I don't know. um, Several other teams that are competing for wild card, if not, you know, playoff spots. This is a gauntlet and they, they push their chips to the middle of the table that they could easily be right in it. But in two weeks, they could be eight to ten games out of it. Yeah, and what we saw from the from the Angels on Thursday, I don't think there's any doubt. It's like giving a kid, you know, five candy bars. Like, you can bet in that clubhouse, you know, the, okay, here we go. Not only did we keep Otani, but you know what? We added Lucas Giolito. I think that their general manager, Perry Manassian, will add more going forward. And it is possible that they get back into this thing. And I, you know, look, I wrote a piece about this yesterday. It's on ESPN.com. Here's the bottom line. If this doesn't work out, if they don't re-sign Otani, and I think secondarily, because I I do think the secondary concern was making the playoffs. Secondarily, if they don't make the playoffs, this is going to be one of the most criticized decisions that we've seen in baseball in recent years. Uh, Because the analytics – that people had uh, landed with that. But on the other hand, I got to say, in an era in which we've talked about tanking and teams not trying, I love the fact that Artie Moreno, the Angels owner, is like, no, we're going to try to win. And beyond that, you understand why, from his perspective, his feeling of, look, if we trade Otani, it probably slams the door any chance that we bring him back. And if we've got 
uh, you know, we've been talking so much about the fan graphs odds for them making the playoffs. I wish we had an odd system for Otani because that's really what's driving this. He's feeling like, look, if we got a 5% chance to keep Otani, then I'm going to play it out. I got to do what I can because the guy is that valuable. So you respect what's behind his decision-making, even if uh, yeah. the decision. No, that's why I think there is no easy answer, but I do. I, I can certainly see where a team would justify. We have the best player on the planet. Uh, we saw what he did yesterday. You know, he pitched a, a, an incredible game. Then he comes back and hits homers. It's like, why wouldn't we – why would we not want that guy on our team if we still have a chance? You know, you think about any other competition, battle, war. If you have the greatest marksman on your team, you're not going to trade him if you still have a chance to live another day. So, again, the argument is there. The Braves are another team that's part of the the upcoming schedule for them. It, it's – Look, I'd rather have him on my team if I'm trying to beat those teams than not. Um, and and in, the, in this tournament, in the postseason, anything can happen. You know, the idea that because Houston is playing better and they're getting healthy, that doesn't mean that they stay healthy. There's all sorts of possibilities as you yep. move forward to just discount yourself because the Astros are getting better. The Dodgers are playing better. The Braves are so good. I, I, we don't know what happens to those teams along the way. So, uh, you know, look, I agree. I, I give them credit for trying. I just don't think realistically, even with Otani and Trout, that they are a World Series winning team. But that may not matter. And to your point, if you plant in the, seat, in the mind of Otani, we are going to try down the road. We're doing it with you now then that may serve as a reason for him to seriously consider staying where he is. Uh, my, my gut says, regardless of the outcome, he's going to leave. I, I think he wants to try something different. I, want, I think he wants to see what it's like somewhere else on a team that he believes has a better chance of consistent success. But uh, I'm, I understand why they did it. I really do. And why not, by the way? Why not add? Why is it always about you know, trading, why not add around him? And that's what they're doing. Oh, and, 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 and you know, I did two follow-ups on that. One, I love Perry Manassian's response to this because he's told by his owner, you can't retreat. You can't trade Otani. You can't flip him for prospects. So once that's in place, you know what? His response is, our team is, you know, not, it's a basically a 500 team at this point. I'm told they can't retreat. I'm going to go forward. I'm going to trade prospects. I'm going to try to win this year. Uh, and especially, you know, in trying to demonstrate to Otani that this is a place where you can play meaningful games. And about Otani's decision coming up, I agree with you. I think, generally speaking, people think that he's going to wind up with another team. However, the underrated part of what Otani has with the Angels is he's never going to have a situation more catered to him than he has right now. The Angels don't ask him to do sponsorship stuff. They don't ask him to meet and greet. He meets with the media like once a week. He pretty much is on his own program. They listen to his opinions about lineups. Uh, he's not going to get that anywhere else. If he goes to the Dodgers for $600 million or the Mets or the Padres, you know that there's going to be an expectation of bells and whistles along with that. And this guy is clearly uh, devoted every single day to being a great player, doing everything he can to be a great player, and he's not, it's not going to be as simple anywhere else as it is with the Angels. 
No, I would agree with that. I, I would think, though, that if somebody is going to pay him a certain amount of money, that there is some expectation that goes with it from the organization on that player. I think we've seen that before. So I'm not certain that it stays the same way that it is now. If somebody's going to give him five or six hundred million, there has to be some expectation that beyond being the great player, and and with all due respect to Otani, um, I think if you look around baseball and Sunday night certainly is a great example of it, you've got to you've got to spread your brand. You've you've got to become a player that other people uh, who are not necessarily diehard Otani or Angel fans get to know you. We've seen it with Mookie Betts. We saw it with Rafael Devers. There are those opportunities that I think under a new contract with security, not worried about whether I'm getting traded or not, you see a little different side of him, plus getting more and more comfortable with the culture in the country. What he has with the Angels is, I uh, wrote in the piece yesterday, is autonomy, right? He does. <laughs> I mean, no doubt. He, he completely controls everything. I've been, you know, been in the dugout for all-star games and it's a thing to ask him for an interview. You know, you want to ask him, hey, how was the game today? And you have to go through the agent and they, you know, then the agent runs through the team. And it's a whole thing because he just apparently wants to be walled off just to play baseball. And so we'll see how that all plays out in the months ahead. And as you say, you know, the Angels giving themselves the best chance to win this year. The Yankees, uh, Carl, seem to be giving them, trying to give themselves the best chance to win this year by putting Aaron Judge back out on the field. You know, I thought about this earlier in the week. If you know that he's not going to be right the rest of the year, if he's going to be 70, 80% the rest of the year, and he's comfortable with trying, and he's gotten his nine-year, $360 million deal uh, this last offseason, why not? Why not let him uh, throw him out there? Because you know this, if you're the Yankees, You've always been a much better team with him in the lineup than not yeah. in the lineup. What do you think about yeah. that choice? Well, I, in just tying the two of those things together, um, you know, the Otani deal is such that I think he knows this. One player, two great players, doesn't guarantee success in any way, shape, or form in a larger, you know, scope. Like, just because we have me and Mike Trout doesn't mean we win – but you counter-argue that with, well, look at the difference Aaron Judge makes to the New York Yankees. It's, it's almost like credible, not credible. He's on the field. It's a whole different team. It changes the lineup. It changes the approach of the pitcher. It changes the way that they throw to that team. His presence on it. Everything changes. But one man doesn't win a World Series title. And a compromised Aaron Judge is way better than anybody else they're throwing out there. Um, you know, as, as several people have noted, it is stunning that the New York Yankees are throwing the guys out in the outfield that they are. You know, this is the franchise that is known historically for some of the greatest outfielders in the history of the game. And now you're talking about, you know, Oswaldo Cabrera and Isaiah Kiner for left. They've had injuries. Yeah, exactly. They've McKinney. had injuries to Bader. Aaron Hicks was out there for a while. <laughs> Look, in a weird way, they miss Brett Gardner so badly on this team, just who he was, what he represented. And I'm not suggesting they win with Brett Gardner, but like when that guy was gone, you like one of the foundation pieces was there forever. Everything kind of changes as a result of that. It's not a Brett Gardner conversation. The, the point is it's just different. Having Judge out there is huge. I would, I would if he's not going to – he can't injure it anymore – I would absolutely hope that he would play. I mean, here we are. This is 
you know, July, what, 27, 28. We need, we, we got to go now. You know, we have to go now. There's too many other teams, including the Red Sox, who now are buyers. So they're all getting better. We need you on the field. All right, let's go through some 30-second bursts here. Uh, the White Sox trade Lucas Giolito. They're going to make other moves. The question in the industry is whether or not they actually would put Dylan Cease, Tim Anderson out there. Look, if I'm the White Sox at this point, and I'm uh, Rick Hahn, the, the general manager of the team, I'm going to Jerry Reinsdorf and said, let's turn it over. What do you think? Sure. I would, I would, I would try that. It hasn't worked. I mean, that, that's for sure. And this is a talented team. I mean, this is a team that coming into the last couple of years, you're like, absolutely, the White Sox can, can win that division. You know, the Guardians are always kind of there, but there's nothing about the Guardians that have you think nobody else in the division can compete with them. It hasn't worked. I, I, I say let's, let's, move some of the, let's move the pieces and let's just rebrand this whole thing. Yeah, and at a time when the teams like the Orioles and Reds are looking for controllable starting pitchers, Dylan Cease, Logan Gilbert have a lot of value in the marketplace. The Marlins add a couple relievers. I love this. When you see the Marlins aggressive, Jorge Lopez, and then last night, maybe the best reliever available, David Robertson. Buster, I I think one thing that we just saw with when we did the game Wednesday, it was the Red Sox and Braves, and they swept Atlanta. I don't have a super team in baseball this year. Right. I know the Braves. I know the Braves have been great, but they just got swept by a Red Sox team that two weeks ago was 15 games out. Um, so why wouldn't why why wouldn't all these teams that have a have a real chance try to continue to get better and get in? Because I this is wide open. I mean, look at the teams that are currently in playoff position. It's wide open. So I'm I'm all about what. Kim is doing and bringing in a familiar, you know, player in Robertson. And it's it's good for Dave. It's good for Miami. They just had their way with Tampa. I mean, this is a it's a good team. The Mets selling is the right decision. Yes, and do you expect Scherzer Verlander to move? You know, the the idea that Verlander's name has sort of become the the one that's risen to the top is a possibility. And obviously, the Orioles and and many other teams, any other team, would be interested is interesting to me. I would have thought, because I, you know, I spoke to him when we did that game Sunday. Um, it, it's not necessarily a deciding factor, but, you know, his family, his wife love it there. He seems to really enjoy New York. So I'm a little surprised, but sure. I mean, I, is there any other pitcher that you would, and, and I would include Otani. Is there any other pitcher that you'd want on your team besides Justin Verlander so it makes sense and yes the Mets should be in the in the cell mode that that's been a flat team most of the year curiously it it continues if the Mets trade Verlander unless they get a a serious haul of prospects for him I don't think they would because the amount of money involved you know 14 million dollars for the rest of this year 43 million dollars next year unless you get a huge package of prospects I'm not trading him in part because you trade him, you're going to be looking for someone like him for 2024. They're not going to go through this full rebuild. They're actually going no. to try to win next year. Uh, the Cubs, everyone's waiting to see whether they be buyers or sellers. I think, to me, a team that won a World Series in 2016, there's more latitude for them to say, you know what, let's take advantage of the trade value right now of Cody Ballinger and, to a lesser degree, Marcus Stroman, who has not pitched well over his last six starts. Yeah, I think Stroman uh, would be an ideal candidate to go uh, to a contender. I think Stroman would enjoy that atmosphere. Houston, uh, Houston. I, I don't look at the last – I don't worry as long as he's physically okay. I do think a lot of these guys, Cease, Stroman, 
uh, Otani, if it were the case, um, w- w- would be I- ideally motivated by an environment like that. I do think change of scenery is a real thing when you get traded at the deadline to go to a team that's competing. I definitely think it matters. So I, I-, I think Stroman would be great. The only thing about the Cubs that their fans would hold on to, and, and look, there's a reason they're fans. They're-, they're not objective. They are fanatical about their team. You know, they're, they're run differential relative to like every other team in the wild card race. They're like plus 55 or something, and, and everyone else is in the red. So there are reasons to think that they're great uh, or, or at least as good as team that can compete. But I'm, I'm, I've been a hard seller on them. I don't think it's realistic to think they can win the whole thing. And 30 seconds on the Red Sox, the team you just saw, what are they going to do before the deadline? Because I, I, my guess is it's measured. I don't see them going hard, big move, trading prospects. No, and I, you know, I think if you know Alex, uh, I think if you get these four guys back, no team is going to have bigger trade acquisitions than Trevor Story, Chris Sale, uh, Hauk, and uh, Whitlock. No team. There's no team that's going to trade for something like that. And then you add either a, a number three or four starter or a bullpen piece. He knows they're in a tweak mode. And again, they're the perfect example of there's no super team out there uh, and their momentum is clearly rising. Why wouldn't the Red Sox make a couple of moves? You're not going to make a big splash. I don't think they're in a Dylan Cease conversation because Bloom has made it quite clear. If you look at our team now, you're starting to see the fruits of what we've discussed, which is guys like Casas and Wong being foundational pieces. We're not going to undercut our foundation uh, either at that level or even underneath at that minor league system because this this is what he wants, and it's a dangerous combination. They do have money if they want to spend it on free agency in the future. It's the Red Sox. They have it. All right, Carl. I will see you in Baltimore. Okay, looking forward to it. The White Sox figured to be one of the busiest teams before the trade deadline, and Rick Hahn uh, made that deal with Lucas Giolito the other day. He spoke with the reporters about what this does for the White Sox. You know, quite frankly, it was a, a mildly emotional conversation with Lucas a few moments ago, informing him of the trade. Obviously, uh, given this club's performance over the course of the last several months, it's uh, apparent that these type of moves have to take place given where we're at and putting us in the best position we can be going forward. Uh, That said, uh, obviously Lucas's and Ronaldo's tenure with the White Sox is not ending in the way that we envisioned when we first acquired them. Uh, And I complimented both of them, not just on uh, their performances on the field, but the players they were in our clubhouse and the way they represented them and themselves in this club off the field, which uh, meant a great deal over their tenure. Uh, and they will, they will both certainly be missed and certainly both uh, can help make that uh, Angels team better positioned for hopefully a postseason run for both of them. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Buster. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, taking in all these moves, all of the you know the decisions that teams are making, and you know we've been talking. We spoke with Carl Ravitch about the Otani situation. I mentioned to him that I think the perspective of the Angels front office was once the word comes down for Artie Moreno that they're not going to trade Otani, they considered their position, and then their feeling is, you know what, 
we're, we can't retreat. We might as well try to get better. What did you think? I think it makes a ton of sense. And even if they don't make the playoffs, even if it doesn't work per se, they're also showing Shohei Otani what they're willing to do for him and to create a contender, which is going to matter in free agency as well. So it's almost like they're auditioning for him in November and December right now, in addition to trying to make the playoffs in the very top American league. Yeah, I think, in fact, if you were to sort of rank what the priorities are for Artie Moreno, you know, owner of a team that has made the playoffs since 2014. Number two is make the playoffs, which sounds weird, but I think number one is to try to convince Shohei Otani to stay. And and I, and I talked about this with Carl, that in this era in which we talk about tanking, there's a part of me that admires Artie for giving it a shot, you know, because so many teams, it feels like wave the white flag. No, we can't do it. The numbers point us in one direction. And Artie's got the guts to say, if this is the avenue through which the one avenue through which we might be able to keep Otani, he's so unique that I have to take it. Does that make sense? I mean, it's just so exciting to see a team do this and they may not make the playoffs. We'll see. But that moment on uh, what was it Wednesday night where during the game we were doing with Carl and Eduardo and Tim, the report came down that the Angels were going to keep Otani. Everyone was kind of reacting to that. And even Still, you hear that and you say, okay, there's still a few days left. I understand that's their plan, but we'll see. And then, like two hours later, they make this trade for Lucas Giolito and Reynaldo Lopez. And that was kind of the exclamation point of, okay, they're definitely not trading Otani. And I think everybody gets excited to see what's next. So I certainly enjoy seeing this. I hope it works out for them. But I love seeing a team try to go all in as best. Thing hands. Yep, exactly right. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is one. So speaking of Shohei Otani, there's a theme today with the numbers game, which is what happens when you have a day like Shohei Otani had yesterday. So yesterday, he threw a one-hit shutout in game one of the doubleheader against the Tigers. And then in game two, he had a home run and then another home run. So he became the first player ever with a home run in one end of a doubleheader and a shutout in the other. And again, not just one home run, it ended up being two. Number two. Number two is two. So if we want to try to rank this say in baseball history, obviously it was a doubleheader. He got two chances to do things. But he's one of five players all time to throw a shutout and hit two home runs in the same game. Now, the other four guys all did it in one game, which, yes, is more impressive, but it's pretty crazy just to think about the fact that he did this and all. We had Sonny Seifert in 1971, Rick Wise in his no-hitter in 1971, which I think is probably the greatest day on a four-homer game in baseball history for an individual. And then Pedro Ramos in 1962 and Mel Pappas in 1961. So not only has this happened now five times, twice where the pitcher allowed one hit or fewer being Otani and Rick Wise, but it happened four times between 1961 and 1971. And then never before or since 
Until wow. yesterday. Number one. Number one is 38 because Shohei Otani had two home runs yesterday to bring his total to 38 on the year. That is by far the most home runs in a single season by a pitcher to throw at least one shutout. And it is not only the most, as I said, it is by far the most. The next most was 11 by Bam Ruth in 1918. Yeah. So again, nobody has done what Joey Otani is doing. All right. Just uh, so you know how old I am, I covered Sonny Siebert as a pitching coach with the San Diego Padres a long time ago. So that, uh, uh, that name sort of bring, brings up memories for sure. A great guy. About Otani, you know, when I we had uh, Dusty Baker, and I'm sure you've heard these stories, but we talked to Dusty Baker a couple weeks ago, and I asked him to try to put it into perspective. And this is someone who played with Hank Aaron and Willie Mays, et cetera. And his response was, he's a bad man, <laughs> which I thought was just perfect. It really is uh, unbelievable everything that uh, is going on here with him and, and how exciting he is. Uh, that's for sure. All right. As we get close to the trade deadline, tell me a team. Give me the name of a team that you're watching closely in terms of what they may or may not do. I mean, for me, I think it's the Orioles. And obviously, we have them on Sunday baseball this week. So they're very much on my mind. But then American League East has been so tight all year. You look at the Boston Red Sox, who played so well in July. The Blue Jays are playing well. The Rays are still there. And you think about them leading the division right now, the Orioles, but needing to do something to cement that and to make sure that they're viable in October. So I'm very interested to see what they might do. I think starting pitching makes a lot of sense. Relief pitching, that seems to be where they need to work. Yeah, Taylor, we had a long conversation on our Zoom prep call for Sunday Night Baseball last week about the Orioles and what they might do. And we talked about the ownership. Like, we know this, the players are all in, they're they're firing, you know, doing uh, in all cylinders, taking over first place. The staff, you know, is all in. The front office is pick the best players. This is, to me, going to be an indication of where ownership stands on all this, Taylor. John Angelos, are you thinking about your baseball team or how you're going to secure John Bon Jovi to Camden Yards next summer for the concert series? That's what I need to know. That's what I'm going to try and evaluate this weekend when we're in Baltimore. Hopefully it's yeah. the former. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I'm with you, Sarah. I think they're, because, they, you know, last year they were two games out in the wild card when they punted, when they decided to sell and not add. And now they're in first place. And now is an appropriate time. If you have an opportunity to get a controllable starting pitcher, you know, maybe it's Dylan Seas, maybe it's uh, Logan Gilbert, as we talked about. You know, We'll see what opportunities are out there for the Orioles. All right, thanks for doing this. We will talk to you on Sunday night. Thanks so much for having me, Buster. The NFL schedule drops this week, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code BASEBALL. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. That's vividseats.com today, code BASEBALL. Vivid Seats, experience it live. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes. 
The clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Kevin Agandhi, of course, is an anchor on 6 o'clock Sports Center. Uh, he also is my nemesis going <laughs> way, way, way back to when we had a bet on Temple versus Vanderbilt, uh, and that uh, did not turn out well for me. Nothing turns out well for me, Kevin, whenever I deal with you. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, backstory, of course, you uh, uh, a hat was on the line from our alma mater in that game, and then, of course, later on, uh, the Minnesota Vikings, Philadelphia Eagles, uh, back and forth that we had, and we had a lot of fun with the Buster. Good. Season. There's no back and forth in the Vikings and Eagles over the last decade, right? <laughs> I got Mike Trout taunting me. I got you taunting me. My Vikings are a disaster. And, but I didn't intend to bring you on to talk about all that. I intended to sort of be the arbiter in a Twitter beef that's apparently developed between you and Taylor, because Taylor made reference to this the other day. Like, you took a shot at him on Twitter. Taylor, you could jump in and give some context here. I was just being bitter about Bryson Stott, and I was making fun of his name. I said he sounded like a Scottish old-timey merchant, and then <laughs> Kevin's sending me Phillies gifts, and uh, you know, just just some light gloating. I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was too vicious. Not like anything he's, he's unleashed on you, but uh, you know, there was a there was a little bit of a tiff for sure. Kevin got hey, listen, better, and of you it. followed up with that. And yeah, you, I mean, you followed up. You it obviously stuck uh, in your heart because you're bringing it up the next day. Well, you know, Kevin's got this reputation of being the nicest guy at ESPN, and I feel yeah. like we need to we need to peel back some layers on that because he's he's got a vicious side to him. Uh, well, listen, that Taylor, we don't need uh, to let out any secrets. Okay, all right? we <laughs> uh, we all have fun. It's all in good taste, and that's what it's about. That's the reason why we got into sports, right? We're big fans, and 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 to be honest with you, that was a great series. It that was. was a fantastic series. And I was scared out of my mind of the Orioles because that team can hit. And uh, we, we're we right now, the, the Phillies as a team, they're just struggling on hitting. But the timely hitting in the, late in, the, in those uh, last two games played a big role. So when I was a kid, I was a huge Dodgers fan. And, you know, I had posters of Garvey and Say and Davey Lopes and Dusty Baker. Uh, but I don't I, I never had anything like you apparently have in your house as we're do, taping this on Zoom. I'm looking behind you and I'm like, oh, my God, how did Kevin convince his uh, better half yeah. to fill the house with that much memorabilia? Oh, she's so sick of it. She, first off, she's a Florida Gator. So we've got a couple of Florida Gator uh, things in this basement. A couple. But I mean, I'm in, the, in the shot I'm seeing, it's already outnumbered 102 then. Yeah, and you haven't even seen my Mike Schmidt jersey. And, and uh, you know, we, we got a Julius Irving jersey. We got a Larry Bird and Julius uh, fighting a, that, that infamous uh, exhibition game. So, uh, listen, she's got other places in the house, but downstairs is – is and, and listen, the, the most important thing, Buster, I've got three kids. I live in Connecticut. 
I had to make sure that they were brainwashed to be Philly fans for the rest of their life. So wow. wherever they go, they're surrounded. If you go in their rooms, they've got eagles, fatheads everywhere. We talk about the Phillies. We go to all these events because no matter what, they were not going to be New England fans. And I, that was the most important thing in their upbringing for me. Okay, what I've learned from this uh, conversation with you is that either you or I is a complete failure as a parent, okay? Because <laughs> I took the other approach where I was like, you know, whoever my kid roots for, it's up to him. And Jake, my kid, is apparently weird like I was. I grew up in central Vermont, rooted for the Lakers, the Dodgers, the Vikings. Uh, he grew, you know, has, has never spent a day outside of Westchester, I think, in his whole life, just north of New York City. And his favorite teams are the Tennessee Titans. He followed them because Jake Locker, and he's got the same first name as okay. Jake did, Jake Locker, when he was eight, nine, ten years old. He roots for the Titans. The Charlotte Hornets, God knows how he landed that. And the Atlanta Braves. Okay? Oh, my Yes. <laughs> like, that's everywhere. his combination of teams because I let him do what he wants. How did you, on the other hand, take control in the way that you did with your kids? So, you know, when when the Eagles played, um, when they played the Patriots in the Super Bowl, it, it, my son was super young, and my oldest. And uh, listen, uh, he was surrounded by all these kids that had Brady jerseys and everything like that, right? Everywhere he went. And I told my wife at the time, I was like, our son's sports soul is at stake here. He was five years old. I said, if the Eagles don't win, I think I'm going to lose him. I think he's going to go with all his friends. And, and so when the Eagles won that game, I knew not only did it fulfill my childhood dream, it made sure he had a lasting memory as a young kid about to turn six that the Eagles won the Super Bowl and then all the memorabilia. And that played a huge role. Now, I will also say this, Buster. I always want them to come back to Philadelphia sports, but like my nine-year-old absolutely loves Mookie Betts. So he yeah. has Mookie Betts jerseys, right? He also absolutely loves Russell Wilson. So we have like three Seattle Seahawks jerseys, a Broncos jersey, and I've, I pulled them to the side. He's nine, and I'm like, I don't know if you want to wear these right now the way he's been playing, but but we also know that those two guys are good people. And yeah. at the same time, I'm like, I'm okay with that. But we also... We have our we have our Jalen Hurts jersey, right? We have our Trey Turner Phillies jersey, and my my eleven year old he loves like all the quarterbacks. He loves Justin Herbert because he loves the Oregon Ducks. We took him to the Rose Bowl when I was hosting that parade one year, and they were playing, and he was just like just crazy. I love the colors, and Herbert's my guy. So it's like okay, you can have a Chargers jersey. So we allow them to be themselves. And at the same time, it's like, but we also come back. Because, Buster, a backstory with me, my favorite player of all time is Bo Jackson. I wow. had 15 Bo Jackson Raiders posters in my room, along with the Randall Cunninghams and along with all these other Reggie Weiss and Eagles stuff. But it was always Bo Jackson and everything and everything I, I followed, right? And so I always believe that you come back to the home team, but you can still follow other teams and players if you identify with that player. Does that make sense? Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, and I and I, I got to say, I'm a little jealous of you because you've been in this industry for a long time and you kept that fandom, right? 
for me, once I started covering professional baseball, it was gone. Like I don't care who wins anymore. And, and, you know, there's no special feeling in any particular team. I do have it when Vanderbilt plays. That's the one thing I do have it some with the Vikings for sure, but a lot of it went away, but I need to, for you to inject truth serum into yourself for me for this next question. I'm going to ask you, uh, the person that you co-host uh, SportsCenter most of the time is is uh, L. Duncan, yes, who is an ardent Braves fan. And I obviously don't know her as well as you do, but she absolutely is someone who I think is fully capable of slam dunking on you if her team wins. So, I mean, you, you, you know, you play it out and you have fun with it on SportsCenter, but truth be told, behind the scenes – when she has the Braves have defeated the Phillies or the Phillies have beaten the Braves, is there a bit of tension where you're like a little bit like, you know, I've had enough. Stop. No, I will say. So, you know what she did? Remember the Sixers blowing that series of the Hawks? She was a big Hawks fan. She yeah. Still- yeah. She brought in on the air Kevin Herter. He was known as Red Velvet. He taped a video eating his cupcake and then she brought the red velvet cupcake on the air on the set with me and I had to eat it. Wow. It it was, uh, it was a low point. Let me tell you, (laughs) it was a low (laughs) point, but here's the thing. Like you and I have that back and forth. Taylor and I have that back and forth. That's what this is all about. Like, yes, I'm a, I'm a fan, but I can let go immediately. Like I can really let go. Like when the, the, the Eagles lost in the Super Bowl. And I'm with my my oldest, and my 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 wife was with the other two uh, in another section. I'm with my oldest. My oldest is crying, and I looked at him. And I was like, "That's okay, though." I said, "We'll come back." So I didn't carry it with me. I, I the whole thing was about my experience with my 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 family more than anything else. And I told them, that, "Hey, listen, this is what's great about sports. There are highs and lows." But we don't let it just dominate how we feel. And that's how Elle and I go back and forth. Now, Elle last year, when the Phillies ended her run, she was nowhere to be seen that week on SportsCenter. <laughs> I was so ticked off because she was at a, a women's conference for ESPN. And I was like, oh, where are you? But I had so much chatter for her on a text chain. And when she came back, I gave her those ribbings. Uh, that's what it's all about. We had, we had the back and forth. We had a great relationship because we never really – we, we talk trash, but we also know how we feel about our teams. We can let go and move on, and let's just have fun with it. And the same way you and I have fun with it. Like, that's what yeah. this is all about. Yeah, and that's an important lesson. Aaron Boone, who you know well, yeah, uh, is also a big Philly guy in terms of teams that he roots for. He told me a story about how when the Eagles lost the Super Bowl, his oldest son, who's oldest, uh, or one of his uh, kids, who's older than your kids, uh, he was upset and went upstairs basically and they had guests at the house kind of you know uh, just buried himself in his room and Booney at that point had a conversation his, his dad's do hey check yourself yep. like let's let's go a little bit so let's, let's that's great that you track keep- right let's right. let's find a way to get and I, one of the cool things it was actually a great teaching moment listen I was pissed off that they lost uh but it was a great teaching moment for my 11 year old where I was like hey listen man 
you're going to lose. That's what sports is about. You, you can't be perfect. So what are you going to do? How are you going to respond to it? Because I'm teaching in that in, in the game of baseball. We have all-star baseball right now with these boys, 11 and nine, they play this weekend. And my nine-year-old's got a game tonight. And I teach these boys specifically, not because it's the sports realm, it's because we can apply it daily. Hey, you're going to have highs and lows. Let's stay in the middle. Let's enjoy the highs, but understand that lows are coming and how are we going to respond to it no matter what. And I'm lucky that we got a quarterback like Jalen Hurts where I can actually say, look to how he's handling it. See how he's handling it. He's not getting upset. He's not throwing things. We're going to respond. We're going to come back. And that's the fun part of the ups and downs and the experiences. And more importantly, Buster, as you brought up with your son and, and Aaron with his son, when they get older and I'm not around, they still have that tie-in. When I look back, I have that with my brother I have that with my cousins. I have that with my dad and my mom when we reflect back those type of memories where I took my dad to the World Series in 2008, right? I saw Ryan Howard hit a home run. The guy who took me to my first game, I took him to the World Series. Those are the things that I want to make sure are established with my boys and my daughter when they get older and they look back. All right. So when you're at the All-Star Game tonight, I'll be on SportsCenter with Al. That is, uh, and so we'll have to trade some of these stories. And I'm, hey. I'm sure it's going to slam dunk on you behind your back. Right, Buster, right, do Kevin. me a favor. Stick up for me a little bit, all right? Al, Al has a little too much fun, all right? Come on. <laughs> uh, I will do that. Thanks, Kevin. You guys are the best. Thank you. All right, everybody. This is Todd Radom, and uh, Buster is a little bit busy today. So I am pinch hitting, stepping up to the plate. And just as an FYI, this weekend, we are taking the podcast on the road for Sunday Night Baseball in Baltimore at beautiful Camden Yards. And it really gives us an opportunity, the perfect opportunity to have on our guest. Janet Marie Smith is an architect and urban planner who is best known for her visionary work on Baltimore's Camden Yards. But she also oversaw the preservation and expansion of Boston's Fenway Park, and is currently the Executive Vice President for Planning and Development for the LA Dodgers, where she has helped to modernize Dodger Stadium. I'm on the record in saying that she warrants inclusion into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown because she has literally changed the way all of us see the game of baseball. And for that, I want to say thank you and welcome to Janet. Thank you. That was awfully kind. Thank you very much. Well, it's great to have you here. So three decades after Camden Yards opened, 1992, it's kind of hard to believe. Do you ever get tired of talking about Camden Yards? No, never. Never get tired of talking about ballparks. So Camden Yards is still close to my heart. (laughs) And for those of us of a certain age who grew up with multi-purpose concrete donut stadiums all over the land, Camden Yards really was uh, a revelation. And certainly part of this involves the fact that it's almost impossible to believe today, but building a ballpark in the middle of a downtown, this was kind of a revolutionary concept in those days. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamics of the location of the ballpark in Baltimore and the potential that you and your team saw there? Sure. I, and I love to talk about it because at 31, there's a whole generation of baseball fans that have grown up with this as their norm. And so the idea that once upon a time, baseball was played in a multi-purpose venue shared with football on the outskirts of town seems like a head scratcher. It's like, what? 
And it's, it's, I think, important to remember the trajectory of these buildings. Baltimore was super lucky that the governor, William Donald Schaefer, was the former mayor of Baltimore, and he just loved the city. So when the Orioles were successful in convincing the state to fund a new ballpark, he famously said of the study that was being done to look at sites, I don't care what the data says, as long as it says build it in Baltimore City. And it was his advocacy for not just a site in downtown, but one immediately adjacent the train station so that the regional MARC train that runs from Union Station in D.C. Um, up to Baltimore would be a natural for fans to use. And of course, trains and baseball go together. So being on the Camden Yard site was a real natural. It even gave us a name. Baltimore yeah. was lucky twice in that Larry Lucchino, who was then the Orioles president, had grown up loving Forbes Field and took note of the fact that the teams that consistently had the highest attendance were the two smallest parks in the major leagues, Fenway and Wrigley. And his thinking was there's something to the charm of these older baseball-only facilities, and I want to see it replicated in Baltimore. The warehouse, the B&O warehouse, this gigantic mammoth building, uh, you built around it. I remember reading at the time that Camden Yards was uh, in the works. There were people who were opposed to this, but of course, 30 years in, we can't imagine a Camden Yards without this feature. Yeah, this thousand foot long B&O warehouse had been the warehouse for the train station. It's shaped like a train because they just unloaded every car, moved it into the warehouse. And uh, it is hard to believe that there were people who wanted to tear it down, but they thought that the ballpark wouldn't have breathing room. They thought that it, the asymmetry of the playing field that the preservation of the warehouse forced uh, was too much of an anomaly. Remember, at this time, most parks had symmetrical outfields. Um, there was concern about the cost. What would it cost? Well, how would we use it? And HOK Sport worked really closely with us to come up with the answer to that, which was to take everything out of the ballpark that didn't have to be in a horseshoe form. The offices, the ticket takers, the ushers changing rooms, and put that in a warehouse so that the building, the state, the, the stadium structure, the ballpark structure could be smaller. But mainly the thing that made us want to save it is that it ran, the idea of tearing it down ran totally counter to the goal of being a contextual building. You know, it's popular to say that Camden Yards was the first of the retro parks. We didn't set out to do a retro park. We set out to do something that was contextual and of the city of Baltimore. So to wipe out its context, we were counter to what we were trying to achieve. Yeah, and it really feels very organic. It feels like it's been there a million years, not 30 years, or at least 100 years. And again, this uh, adaptive reuse, the idea of a ballpark being part of a city, being part of a, a grid of streets, a la Fenway, a la Wrigley. Um, but again, at that point in time, this was kind of a, a revolutionary concept because it had not been followed for so many years. The other part of keeping the warehouse that was novel and revolutionary is that in order to, to accommodate all the fans that were walking over from downtown and make them feel like they had arrived, even though due to the sun conditions, the outfield was the closest point to the entrance, if you will, uh, this idea 
that came out of the RTKL authored master plan of creating Utah Street, letting the street just run through the site. And on every day, 365 a day, you can walk along Utah Street, watch the grass grow, go to the team store. It's part of Baltimore's Inner Harbor Promenade, which then was still new. And it gave fans a sense of it being inside the park because on game days, we, the Orioles simply put turnstiles up and now it's part of the concourse. And I'm always so amused at, um, I love the fact that it was this problem that in solving it created such a fantastic urban um, street and one that's inside the ballpark. And I was always amused after we opened when other teams would say, golly, we'd love to have an outfield experience in our park. I'm like, well, we weren't lucky to create an outfield experience. It just happened that way. And that is the best kind of, that is the best kind of design when you create something that feels like it just was meant to be. Yeah, it's interesting that idea of a front door to the ballpark uh, kind of got turned on its head, I think, with Camden Yards, but it's been replicated certainly in uh, Minneapolis with Target Field, where for the most part, you uh, entered through the outfield. And of course, you have embarked upon defining a front door to Dodger Stadium these past couple of years, right? Right. Dodger Stadium's new front door, as our president, Stan Kasten, likes to call it, um, is what used to be a parking lot. Uh, the back side of the bleachers. Um, so it is an important part of thinking about these very civic buildings. They don't have a backside. They, you need a front door anywhere you need a front door. So at Camden Yards, the ceremonial front door greets you from the south as you drive up either 95 or Russell Street from the D.C. area to Baltimore. But the actual front door is in the outfield as you enter on Utah Street. And Utah Street also gave us an opportunity to do many things that have become part of the Camden Yards lore. Frank Robinson, who was our manager at the time, uh, really worked hard on the outfield dimensions to make certain that Utah Street was just far enough away that a home run could get be hit out there several times a year. Not so close that it was an everyday thing, but not so far away that it was a ridiculous achievement to imagine a mere mortal accomplishing. And every time a home run is hit out, there's a bronze plaque put where it was hit and the hitter's name and how many feet and the date. And so 31 years later, there's several hundred there and it's just magical. And it is an important part of the design intent for Camden Yards. You know, we were leaving Memorial Stadium where the Orioles had won several World Series and people had loved the the experience, even if the ballpark had aged and needed to be replaced. And so how do you move into a new building and let it tell its own story? And that's what we were trying to do with some of those gestures. Yeah. And you bring up the name Frank Robinson. And um, I remember reading about this at the time. We've, I believe, talked about it since. But the uh, relationship between you and Frank Robinson in creating parts of the ballpark, seemingly an odd couple experience. How about that? Well, Frank was amazing and he cared so much and he had a lot of credibility. You have to, I mean, again, sort of think back, Larry Lucchino, who was our president, had never built a ballpark. I had never built a ballpark. Uh, HOK Sport had built many, many stadiums, but only Kansas City could have been called a ballpark. So this idea of an asymmetrical playing field, 
of the fence heights being different heights, small amount of foul territory. The uniqueness of that caused a lot of people to question our sanity. But when Frank Robinson said this was a good thing, you know, he had played in these older parks. And Frank really believed that there was more than just character and charm, that it was a home field advantage that the fans knew that park, the fans got to know their players, the players got to know the fans better. He said it crossed the field. He absolutely knew what was going on behind it. He knew how to play that 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 terrace. He knew which fans were going to chide him. He, he spoke of it with such conviction that it really gave a lot of credibility as well as genuine insight into how to make this real. So it wasn't just a Disney-esque kind of thing it was an authentic ballpark yeah and he talked about bringing the triple back into the game if i'm not mistaken at that time right he did and he also advocated the seven foot high fences which again at the time baseball was arguing for eight foot high symmetrical outfields memorial stadium had had a seven foot high fence and frank thought one of the most exciting plays in baseball was seeing that home run being robbed by the outfielder so we packed up and went to New York and lobbied to have those seven foot high fences. And so there are Frank Robinson's name won't be on a lot of those things, but it certainly is his touch and his, his uh, insights into the game that gave rise to so many things that really have made Camden Yards very special. So part of the specialness of Camden Yards to me as a creative person, as a designer, really was the attention to detail there. There are so many wonderful visual details. And I'm a big believer that when it comes to design or art or architecture, probably music, probably food as well, preparing a meal, too many details can spoil the meal. Uh, how did you know when to say when? Well, um, First of all, coming from you, that is a special compliment because your work is fantastic and always just the right amount of detail. And um, I credit David Ashton, our graphic designer, with helping us on a lot of those things. Uh, to be perfectly honest, budget probably was a limitation too, right? We only had so much to spend. But I often say it's good to know when to stop. But what I love about the details there is that, as I said a moment ago, we wanted the building to tell its own story. Baseball is a leisurely sport. You have plenty of time to yip-yap between innings. We wanted fans to feel engaged and to feel a sense of history, even though it was a new park. So the idea of using the 1890s Baltimore Baseball Club logo on the end standard with Wee Willie Keeler. Uh, is the silhouette, should Willie be mirror imaged on the other side? So even though, of course, he didn't bat from both sides, you know, there's a lot of talk about those kinds of things. <laughs> the incorporation of the Baltimore Sun sign into the scoreboard and wiring the H and the E to denote a hit or an era was an idea that was borrowed quite liberally from Ebbets Field. Uh, the the flags on the uh, on the flagport on Utah Street that are still placed 31 years later in descending order of team standing is something that, you know, you look over, you see the Orioles orange waving. Was it at the top of the stack or the end of the stack? I'm sure they're loving their first place spot this year. 
Uh, and I could go on and on, but those those things really mattered. And we wanted we wanted them not just for the accents to the architecture, but we wanted them as a part of the storytelling of the, the game you were seeing in front of you and the history of baseball in the city of Baltimore. Yeah, and this is where form and function come together and hitting all the right notes. So one last question for you, Janet. Uh, looking at the future of ballpark design. So Camden Yards, revolutionary in so many respects, basically sets off this long era of retro style ballparks, facilities that look backwards to the tradition of the game, baseball only facilities. And then sometime early in the 21st century, probably with Miami building a ballpark, a stadium, no longer a ballpark that looks like Miami, we entered a new era. So where do you see things going? And certainly part of this part of the discussion is about um, stadiums that are a part of larger real estate developments. We're seeing this in many places. Atlanta, very revolutionary with this. Texas, to some degree as well. Where are we headed? Well, I'm not sure that we veered that far from where we were in 18, in 1988 when the decision was made to put Camden Yards downtown. Uh, that too was a real estate play. The idea was that the state was going to invest in a location in the city that would encourage development around it was also part of the thinking in Pittsburgh and Cleveland and San Diego. And what we're seeing now is teams being the author of and instigating the development rather than being the magnet for it through a publicly funded uh, engine. But the thesis is the same, is that baseball and urbanity go together. And I hope we don't lose that notion of baseball being central to our cities and our civic life and sort of a, the, the mixing ground for many different kinds of people to enjoy. I think some of the things that have changed, and again, uh, Baltimore burnished some of these ideas experimentally and I think we've only taken them further in the decades since that fans are no longer happy sitting in a traditional seat and keeping score they want to move around they like to roam around uh this idea of being able to go to different places within the ballpark I think has become a part of baseball's formula I sort of hate thinking of it like that but um when we built Camden, Camden Yards, Larry Lucchino felt very strongly about having, not only having standing room, but ensuring that there was there were tickets available on game day. So you always had the sense that you could catch a game, that you didn't have to commit uh, days in advance to being there. And so looking at how some of these newer parks have taken that even further is um, it is really interesting and, and fun to think about. Um, I, it's easy for me to use uh, the Worcester Red Sox as an example, since I'm sitting here at Polar Park today. But Polar Park opened with a with a capacity of almost 10,000, 9,508, um, but only 4,500 fixed seats. Everybody else is either sitting on a bar stool or a berm or you know, just kind of milling around. And I think that is um, one of the enjoyable things about baseball is that you can take it in a variety of different ways. Well, that's a perfect place to leave off because I cannot wait to take in Baltimore's Camden Yards this weekend as we take the podcast on the road for Sunday Night Baseball. And 
Janet, thank you so much for being with us today. So good to see you again. And it's uh, thank you for everything you do and have done. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. I can't wait to hear your reflections after being in Charm City this weekend. Thank you. Bleacher Tweets. All righty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for Friday. Um, another note about uh, Monday's show, but what we're doing over the weekend, we're going to record... Um, a segment with Todd on Sunday before the game. We're all going to be together. Todd will do his Forgotten Field. And then we're trying to like figure out how to spice up the quiz since we're all going to be together. Sarah is really keen on a punishment. <laughs> is there anything that like that wow. you would like abhor to eat? That's kind of what I was thinking. Like, what's what does everyone like hate? Like for me, losing the quiz and having to eat like a handful of shredded lettuce would really be a uh, good motivation for me. But can you think of anything that we might yeah, be able to do. I mean, do. first off, I don't know. You know, this is the first thing here about taping with Todd. So maybe, you know, you two guys can do the quiz against each other and the loser could walk through Canada Yards with a Yankees cap. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, is that yeah. being a punishment? That I think Bruce, that could be, that could be a Bruce, punishment. Bruce, you want to chime Taylor. in here and give an opinion? That sounds perfect. I, I think you hit that right on the head right there. Okay, Sarah? I think that would be a great punishment for Taylor. I have a Yankees hat. So, like, I'm totally fine with that. So, well, maybe we think of a punishment. Walking yards with a Yankees cap is a lot different than having a Yankees cap. Yeah, yeah you know what? That's a good point. That would be rather terrifying. <laughs> so, what do you think? Does that sound good? Sarah, maybe you could bring the Yankees cap uh, this weekend, and whoever hat. loses the quiz has to walk through Camden and Taylor for you. That would be wrenching as an it Orioles. Would, it would be humiliating. So yeah, a picture of me in a Yankees cap, like in, you know, next to the statue of Cal Ripken. Like, yeah, that's, that that's bloody motivation for me. So, and if Taylor loses, he has to take a picture in the Yankees hat and post it oh, on his Instagram man. story. Taylor. Uh, all right. <laughs> we wanted to make it spicy. So we got to, we got to figure out some equal sort of, uh, you know, something equally embarrassing for, for Sarah or, or yourself, Buster. You're going to be working, so yeah, it'll be a little I, I'm, I'm sadly going to have to, uh, I think, uh, to <laughs> retreat the field on this one. All right, all right. Uh, let's answer a couple of tweets here. David Crawley writes in: Do you see, foresee any teams offloading players that aren't performing during the trade deadline, such as Austin Barnes or Josh Donaldson? Also, hearing Tyler's, who is Tyler, David? I'm wondering. Uh, hearing Taylor's birdgasms about the Orioles are starting to get extreme. Are there any FCC violations coming down the pike? Wow, <sighs> David, you botched Man. my name and you're you're criticizing my performances. I'm just kidding. It's all good. And, and you know what? The Orioles have earned it. They're in first place. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. we haven't. I've, this is the fourth year I've been on the podcast, and there was a little bit of yelling last year. But the previous two years, I mean, we hardly talked Orioles. Like I, I never barely made a peep about it. So. It's warranted. Right. I, and I mentioned to one in our conversation with Kevin Nagandi how he and Al Duncan, they love to slam dunk when their teams are good. You too. Oh, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, Sarah was working from the, you know, the bandwagon of the, uh, the, the hottest team in baseball last October for a time, lifelong Phillies fan. She was going crazy. If the Mets were winning, Bruce would be jumping in here. But I noticed Bruce has kept himself muted. Uh, in recent days as a Mets fan. Yeah, it's been it's been a little rough. I, uh, I'm i going to be honest, I nodded off during the rain delay last night, but it was nice to wake up to see a win. But then you see Robertson got traded. It was like, okay, right. I see which direction we're going. And yeah, it'll be a little <laughs> muted for me for the next couple of days. Let's go to Brad Barber. He writes, and the Cubs are 500, four games out of the wild card and six out of the division. They've played 600 balls since June 8th and have one of the easiest remaining schedules. Do they still sell? That's the question. 
Yeah, and I think that really it's it. we've been talking so much about Artie Moreno and the pressure that was on him. He makes a decision to keep Otani. Uh, Tom Ricketts, the owner of the Cubs, I think there's been so much criticism about the Cubs not spending in recent years. I would not be surprised if he's kind of skittish and goes, ah, you know what, maybe we shouldn't sell. I got to say the objective analysis, as it was with the Angels, Cubs should sell. Like, that team is not close to being a World Series contender, and that's the standard if you're the Cubs. Like, if you're a team like the, at this point, the Orioles, let's face it, getting into the playoffs, winning the division, that's a big deal. Now, I don't think any Orioles fans, like, thinking right now, like, the world, winning the World Series is the standard, but if you're the Cubs and you won the World Series in the last decade, just getting into the playoffs is not that big of a deal. Taylor? Yeah, and they've also with I mean the Angels thing is so different because you have Shohei Otani attached and the possibility of signing him. The the Cubs don't have anything like that, and they've been like in that weird, are we rebuilding? Are we going for it mode here? You know, the last couple seasons. So I think right now, just just do a little light sell, sell Cody Bellinger, sell Marcus Stroman. You know, look ahead to next year and and try and invest in your team. You know. Yep, that's exactly. And and let's face it, they put Cody Bellinger out there. He's going to be the most coveted asset between now and the deadline. Mm-hmm. Stewie1969 writes in concern that making it easier to get in the playoffs was not good for the game. I feel the addition of the third spot was one of the best moves Major League Baseball has made in recent years, second to cracking down on the sticky stuff. Totally agree. You think of a team like the Marlins, like a small market team. They're never going to have a payroll, you know, at the level of the Mets or even the Braves, I don't think. Uh, So for them to be in this position where they can make the playoffs, I think that was the primary intent of adding the extra playoff team. And I remember at the time, uh, at at the time this went down, the player association was critical of this to some degree. They said they thought it would make teams less aggressive in making moves. Uh, That turned out to be completely wrong. Here's a good one from Joel Herman, right? He writes in, uh, Giolito to LA slams the window shut for the White Sox. It has been an abject failure and is the benchmark example for a failed rebuild. If you can't, won't supplement the costly free agents and develop talent properly, what hope do we have moving forward? Sox fan off a cliff. I don't blame you, Joel. Yeah, another rebuild. Um, Yeah, and they did have, remember, what was it, 2020? They did have some success. They were the class of the division for, you know, it feels like a brief period of time. But you're right. When we go through these, Taylor and I have talked so much about tanking. When you go through these periods of tanking, uh, it doesn't always pay off. The Phillies went through a period of tanking. It didn't really pay off in the way they anticipated. And then John Middleton stepped in and spent a lot of money and and they built the team in a different way. Uh, The White Sox, you know, their their rebuild has not gone as, as expected. So I think that's that's smart to point out the fact that a lot of the, the tanking jobs don't actually pay off in terms of on-field success. Coach McNett writes in, what is the likelihood of the Marlins trading for Salvador Perez for Kansas City? It opens up for Melendez to be the everyday catcher, should get a decent prospect return, and solidifies Miami's pitching staff and leadership. Yeah, I would disagree with you. I can't remember exactly how much Salvi's owed, but I want to say it's like $63 million for a catcher in his mid-30s. <sighs> I just don't see it. Plus, you know, he's he's uh, he's royalty. He's Royals royalty at this point. So I, I just I, I don't see that happening. It's too complicated. Bart Harley Jarvis at Chief B Freights. And is there something to be said about how dominant the Boston Red Sox have been using the opener? That's yes, but that it is an interesting point. But I, I it feels like it's being tra- treated as serendipitous by the front office. Because all you hear about when you talk to them is, hey, we're going to be getting Whitlock back. Hauk, Sale, 
they'll get away from the opener if they have the opportunity to do so. I love Red Sox fans touting the return of Chris Sale. That just makes me laugh because that's like uh, it, it feels to some degree a little bit like Charlie Brown with the football being pulled right. away by Lucy. Right? I mean, well, I mean, he hasn't been good for Chris a long Sale time. Yeah. He was up 98-99. Oh, ooh, he got ooh. All right, last question and, for you, Buster. Let's make it clear. Yeah. Chris Sale really cares. He wants to do well, and I'm sure he's going to throw as hard as he can when he comes back and, and try to justify as much of that contract as he can. Mm, a lot of pouting, I'm sure, will be done, too, if he does not live up to his own expectations. Uh, last one for you, Buster. We're going to be in Baltimore. We're going to be in Camden Yards. You have a little bit... I think unfairly, you've been unfairly maligned by Orioles fans. Do you think this weekend going to Baltimore, Sunday night baseball, we're doing the podcast there. Do you think this will sort things out between you and birds fans? Well, I think most birds fans that I hear from that, like they get it, that the criticism has been about the owners not spending, Mm -hmm. but you know, on social media and, and forever and ever and ever, you're going to have people chime in and say, why do you hate the team? Why, you know, what's, what's your beef? So no, I don't think it'll completely settle in on social media. What do you think? Mm, Probably not, but I think it's a good olive branch, but this had me thinking too, maybe the Yankees hat punishment should also apply to you. Maybe you should have to post a picture. There's no chance that I would do that. (laughs) No chance that I would do that because there'd be a picture of that and then it would live forever and there's no chance. All right. That's it for Bleacher Tweets. Send them in uh, while you're watching games this weekend. We're going to have some fun and uh, we'll have the pod up nice and early. Again, at Buster Only on Instagram, we'll have some content up there. So we're, we're all looking forward to it. Can't wait to see you guys in person. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Thanks to everybody who contributed to the show today. Uh, have a great weekend. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. So we actually had discussions off the record. Uh, and now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.